0: Good morning. Today we continue our series on the Ten Commandments with what our church body numbers number five, you shall not murder. And the sermon text comes from 1 Timothy chapter one, written by a murderer. Saul of Tarsus speaks to the young pastor Timothy about his former life of persecuting innocent people, imprisoning them, which inevitably led to their unjust death in the end. And Paul, formerly called Saul, speaks about the grace that's present in his life. A grace that gives him faith and love and that completely changes his love for other people. It starts with the grace poured out on him and it's in your service folder on page 9 at the top. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. He's talking there specifically about his service as an apostle or a leader in the church called to do this work of spreading the gospel. Even though I once was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's look at that commandment again and read it together. Fifth commandment. You shall not murder. Who agrees with this commandment? Raise your hand. Good idea? Okay. Go and do likewise. Amen. You'd say, that's the greatest sermon ever. It was under five minutes. It's hot in here. It's a little muggy. We're out of there and we can all shake hands in the back and agree not to stab each other in the throat over the next week, right? Do not murder. Can't we just all make that handshake and go on with our business? But when you open up your newsfeed on your phone or you turn on CNN or Fox News or whatever you watch, what what do you see? We are a people that cannot help ourselves. I remember being in Antigua in 1995. At the time, our family was living in Oklahoma City, but we were visiting my cousins. My uncle came into the room where we were playing, um, and he said, you've got to come in here and see this. So we all got up, and we went into the living room, and he turned up the volume on the TV. And I forgot where I was for a moment because on that television were our local newscasters from Oklahoma City that we had seen on the 7 o'clock news throughout our whole life. And the images on the screen, do you know what I was seeing? The Oklahoma City bombing, the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building that had been blown in half. Maybe you have seen those images too if you lived during that lifetime, it was horrible. And looking at that screen, I thought to myself, this was the first time that I had been attacked, although I was thousands of miles away from home, because those are my people, those are my neighbors, that's my town. Getting off of the airplane, we drove um, through Oklahoma City and we drove by the site. And there was a fence, chain link fence, cornering it off from the public. And at the fence were ribbons and pictures and bows, dolls and teddy bears of little kids who left their room that morning and left those dolls behind never to come back. There was a child care center on the first floor. We prayed that everybody was safe. One of our members at the church had left the building ironically just moments before checking the fire extinguishers. God spared their life. And I was a kid looking at those pictures of other children and I was thinking to myself, can't we just stop this? (laughs) Can we all make an agreement now that this is bad enough? Can we just make a big handshake like all of us, the whole world, and just say, can't we stop taking innocent lives? And I think you'd agree. And at times, we come together as a nation or a society and we say, let's all stop this. But what happens after 1995? 9-11. And we say, okay, let's come together as a nation. Let's stop this bloodshed. We, none of us want it. Thou shall not murder. And what happens then? Virginia Tech. Sandy Hook. Charleston, South Carolina, a church Bible study. San Bernardino, Orlando nightclub. We have a problem. And we're calling ourselves a society that's evolving so much, right? And yet, we can't even help ourselves. And this commandment, you shall not murder, we, we wink at it and we think, yeah, 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 but it's so relevant, but not relevant today. That was for people 2000. No, it's for us today. When we have escalating um, rhetoric against every life, no matter the color, we have rhetoric and Uh, threats to political or ideological parties, no matter the side, Uh, a comedian holding an effigy, the severed head of the President of the United States. And maybe right now you're feeling pretty comfortable with the sermon because you haven't been part of a conspiracy or you haven't pulled a gun on anybody or you haven't been part of the violent rhetoric or maybe you haven't, uh, I don't know, supported a hate group that's taking out violence on other people. But to keep the fifth commandment is so much more than just not to murder. Because I'm sure Timothy McVeigh wasn't born and in in his infancy decided to bomb and kill 168 people. It starts with what God says is an attitude of the heart and of the mind. And it's born into every human being. Whether you play it out or whether you don't. And that's why Paul writes what he writes in First Timothy. He talks about his attitude when he was the worst of sinners and was complicit with murder. Even though he himself, we don't have it recorded, that he ever threw a stone. What was he famous for? Holding the coats of those who were throwing the stones, right? And doing the murder. And he says here, even though I once was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, three words that don't necessarily mean that he actually carried anything out, but blaspheming is using what weapon as, 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 for violence? It's using a mouth. And that's why he sa- it says in Acts 9, verses 1 about Saul's former life, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Uh, recently I spoke with a psych- psychologist who, 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 who talked about the the power of bullying. And bullying isn't taking out a knife and stabbing somebody, but, but bullying is like a thousand little knives in a person. And he says in Acts 22:4: I persecuted the followers of their way to their death, and this is how he did it, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison. Maybe his hands were clean from the death, but he was active in the destruction of these innocent lives, and he now comes to recognize it later in life. So what are we going to do about this? Obviously, you shall not murder is more than just not putting a knife in somebody. It's much more. It has to do with an attitude of the heart. That's why Martin Luther, the reformer, recognized this, and when he wrote his small catechism, in the meaning of that small catechism for the fifth commandment, this is what he says. What does this mean? You want to fast forward a little bit? One more. He says this, and let's read it together. We should fear and love God that we do not hurt or harm our neighbor in his body, but help and be a friend to him in every bodily need. It's calling us to keep this commandment all the way through with the same attitude that God has to look out for the bodily welfare of another human being. And we're gonna go three places with this commandment. How do we keep this commandment like God is really asking us to keep it? Number one, to love what God loves. Number two, to see what God sees. And number three, to trust what God did. Love what God loves, see what God sees, and trust what God did. Number one, love what God loves. I'll start with the illustration about this. What does it mean to love what God loves? Uh, As a young romantic, the pastor standing in front of you was dating his future wife in college. And we had been talking about what was happening to many of her friends at the time, which was they were all getting engaged. And this was a very important conversation that we had. And it was a conversation that we had many times and agreed on. That would be very important for us to one day get married. We had been talking about, well, she had been talking about the cut or the ring or what sort of ring, the four C's that went along with it. Subtle hints, but with a guy's brain, it takes a lot to get through until her birthday came and she was planning to go on a trip to Europe with her girlfriends and I was going to be without her for a long time. And so this timing was just right for me to take her out, I believe it was for your birthday, to the Twin Cities. We lived in a little potong town or went to college in New Minnesota. We drove to the big city and we had a date night and then I proposed to go to REI and get a backpack. (laughs) And I was so proud of myself. I had gotten her what I thought she needed, right? Until the drive home (laughs) and the tears came and I understood in that moment that I wasn't sharing the same dream as her. God wants us to share the same dream that he has and to understand how much and why God hates murder is to understand how much he loves life. In the beginning of creation, he creates this amazing world. Let's just start with the world, not even human beings. He makes interesting creatures. He makes mountains and streams and brings the water up and makes the sky, puts the stars in the heaven, things we're still discovering today, amazing things that by science that we can dig into and to understand. And when he creates, it seems like every time we come into contact with a creation passage in Scripture, it's like God is saying, I'm taking, I'm not lonely. God wasn't lonely why he created this world. He's perfectly infinite. He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that enjoys each other's company. But he's like an artist who wants to get her soul and her heart and her work here out onto a canvas. And so when God created the world, he's saying, I'm taking just a little bit of the goodness, a little bit of the beauty, and I'm putting it out there onto a canvas for everything, everybody to enjoy. And so he creates this world and he makes it beautiful and he makes fish and he makes animals. In fact, I came across an awesome quote from a Christian thinker and writer, Dallas Willard, recently. He says, We pay a lot of money to get a tank with a few tropical fish in it and never tire of looking at their brilliant iridescence and marvelous forms and movements. But God has seas full of them that he constantly enjoys. And then at the end of that creation, day six comes. He makes more marvelous animals. And at the end of day six, what does he create? Men and women. Adam and Eve. And he says this creation is going to be unlike any of the other creations, although I enjoy and everything is good each day of creation. What did he say about that last day? He said it is very good, very good, because he's made something that has infinite value, you and me. And it says that he puts his image on them and uh, Genesis says this. It says, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God's putting himself onto this creature and saying, this creature is unlike any other creature and this creature reflects my very essence. And there are things about us, not everything about us, but there are things about us that reflect God, like we have an immortal soul that goes on into eternity, that we're created for a sense of justice and we're created for a, a sense of love and, and we're created for relationships that, that go on. Unlike any other creature, God says, I'm crowning the creation, I'm putting infinite value, and there's a transcendent value on life. To understand how much God hates murder is to understand that God created life and that he puts his image on each and every one of us, regardless of age, sex, um, uh, you know, political affiliation or culture. He says life is valuable. Now, if we take that away, let's pretend now for a moment that, that that the image of God isn't on any human being. Then you get into the mindset of, say, like a philosopher, like the Greek philosopher Protagoras, who said, man is the measure of all things. If there is no God, and if man is the measure of all things and there's no transcendent value in life, then you and I become like the fed of human life currency. Like you and I can put the value on what that person's life and what that person's life, and as a culture, we can put a value in a society. We can say, human life is worth this much. And no no one's to say who's the head of it all, and there is no image of God, but we've kind of evolved along the side of all the other animals and we just have come out on the top. And so to kill a human being, wouldn't be anything more than to pull up a dandelion or to step on an ant? Really, if you think about it, you could put that kind of value on a human life if there's no image of God. And then, if you follow the logic, who's to say? Who's to say that some women have more value than other women and some women can be used as a commodity for sex trafficking? And if we're the fed of the currency of the human life, who's to say that little children who give nothing to society, except their hands and their feet, who's to say that we can't just put them into factories and make them work 12 hours a day without any air conditioning and with little food and not pay them? Who's to say? Who's to say that um, I recognize that my race is superior and your race is inferior and that I can carry out genocide or any other type of horrific things because my currency of life is far, far less valued in you because you don't have the image of God on you. And who is to say in the very relevant context of the Apostle Paul, formerly Saul, that if I disagree with your ideology, in other words, if I'm a Jewish person that doesn't like the message of Jesus, I can imprison you and I can put you to death. But that's not what we're created for and that's not what God loves. God says, I've put an infinite value on every head. And so to keep my commandment means not only not to murder but that you view another person with that same infinite value that I do. Not because of anything they've done but because I put the value on them. And so when I get onto a bus and I see that my seat, I'm sitting in my seat and I see that there's somebody that is an elderly person or I see a pregnant woman, I'm gonna give up my seat, not because I'm the head of the currency of human value, but I do it because I see how much value God puts on that person, and I give him my seat. This is how much God um, creates value for us. After Noah gets off the ark, um, it's an interesting story, and I wonder, and, I, and I'm sure, that, that humankind was struggling with murder before the flood and with taking human life unjustly, it says this, it says, God talks to Noah and he says, whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. That's how important life is to God. That if anybody takes a life unjustly, that God says, that same person that takes the life is putting them in the spot of God. And God does not want that to happen. And then he says, as for you, be fruitful and increase in number, multiply on the earth and increase upon it. In other words, I want you to value life so much that you support, the ongoing of life with your words, with your deeds, with your actions, with your family planning. I want you to embrace it as a gift. So to love what God loves means not just to not murder, but to look out for the welfare of everyone around you. But then, to keep the fifth commandment, we need to, too, see what God sees. Shortly after the Virginia Tech massacre, as it's been known now, where 33 lives were taken, including the perpetrator. There was an op-ed piece in the New York Times. Um, David Brooks wrote this. You Can put it up on the screen? I can't see his will from there. And he writes this, and he recognizes that there's this shift in the attitude of how we treat life. He says, in short, the killings at Virginia Tech happen at a moment when we are renegotiating what you might call the morality line, the spot where background forces stop an individual choice and individual responsibility begins. The killings happen at a moment when the people who explain behavior by talking about biology, chemistry, and social sciences are assertive and on the march, while the people who explain behavior by talking about individual character are confused and losing ground. Do you know what he means by that? What he's saying is this. After a massacre like this happens, well, today, in our society, we're talking more about the social, the social biological makeup of the murderer. What caused them, what triggered them to do this in their upbringing? What caused them, what triggered them to do this in their, um, in their uh, psyche? And we're trying to analyze that so much. And what we're doing is that we're focusing more on the surroundings of the upbringing of a murderer that what aren't we focusing on anymore? He says, personal character i.e., in church, we call it sin. <laughs> and there is a place for analyzing a murder, but it's exciting to do, and there's so many documentaries on it. There's just about as many so- social-economic makeups of a murder that there are people. But what he's putting his finger on is interesting. We, ne- we aren't talking any longer about the heart and about the soul that recognizes that God puts infinite value on life. Jesus would be one to come back and say, it's all about what's in the heart. It's all about the personal characters that comes from the Spirit. That's why he had a sermon series on the Ten Commandments. Did you know that? His sermon series was called, The Sermon on the Mount. And he preached a lot better than any of us pastors and a lot more direct. He got to the point. This is what Jesus says. He says in Matthew 5, 21 and 22, The words here that it's used, you can recognize murder, he says, by an attitude in the heart, by, by a personal flaw that is innate in us by nature called anger, or angry with a brother or sister. You can recognize murder before it even happens in the heart when you think in your head or say with your mouth, raka, which is a word that was used back then to speak down to somebody. It was a demeaning word, a, a, a word that, that, that said, I'm higher than you, you're lower than me for some reason, and I'm going to let you know about it, Rock I. And then later on it says, if you use the word, you fool, which literally translated is, our word in English, moron. Which I'm sure nobody in their head has ever thought, that person's a moron. God's saying that this goes far deeper, the, the problem of murder, than putting a knife in somebody. So how about you? Paul says, uh, first of all, murder is dehumanizing life in any way, shape, and form dehumanizing life in any way, shape, or form. Saul did it, and that's why he writes, verse 15, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom, and notice the tense. He doesn't say past tense. He says present tense. I am the worst. Present tense, how about you? He's not asking you to put yourself onto a scale and weigh yourself against how bad a sinner he is, he just wants you to recognize the present tense in your life. Have you demon have you demonized or have you dehumanized a boss at work with actions or with words? Talk around the cooler? Have you dehumanized a family member in anger? Sarcasm literally means what? To rip the flesh. Or how about as a how about as a school or as a student are you complicit with bullying or are you the bully or have you gone by the side of the hallway where somebody like the good samaritan that we heard somebody has been beat up or somebody's hurting and you haven't gone out to look after their bodily welfare We need to ask it as a church too We look outside of our church and we see sinners. And we see people that don't have a highest view of scripture as we have. Do we have in our heart, raka, moron? When God says to love even your enemies and pray for them. Because God puts an infinite value on their heads as well. This brings us to the most important part about keeping this commandment. And it's nothing about what we've done, but it's about number three. See what, um, I'm sorry, trust what he has done. Trust what he did. We're so obsessed with the character of the murderer, that the upbringing, the biological makeup, why do we care so much more about that? Because we can do something about that. But there's one thing that we can't do, and that's change somebody's heart. Change their attitude completely. And that's why we're so obsessed with the chemical, biological makeup of bullying and murder and evil thoughts. But the only way that you can get to the heart of it is if you have a God like the God of the Bible. Like the God who came to the first murderer, Cain, struck down his brother in cold blood, And God could say, Cain, I'm going to wipe you off the face of the earth. You deserve to die for this. Blood for blood, he would say later on to Noah. But instead of that, they have this conversation. God comes to Cain and he says, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. In other words, the blood that was dripped onto the ground, Abel's blood, is in this metaphor, literally crying to God, saying something is infinitely wrong with this, that a human life has been taken. This was not what we were created for. The ground is mourning over this, and God says, the ground is mourning. What have you done? And, and, Cain, and Cain says, the, the punishment is too great. Don't come down on me. I'm gonna be sent away from this land and everybody's gonna wanna kill me. And that's true. Everybody would wanna kill Cain, blood for blood. But what does God say instead of, you're going to be killed? He says what? No. Not so. Anyone who kills Cain, a murderer, will suffer vengeance seven times over. And he puts a mark on Cain. It's nothing that Cain earned or deserved. It's called grace. He puts that mark on Cain so Cain's life would not be taken. And I pray that Cain believed in that God of grace. The blood cried out from the ground saying that there was something infinitely wrong with human beings and there is. It's called what Paul says the chief of sinner syndrome. We're broken. But God did something about it and he changed the hearts and he did it this way. He came to earth and instead of dehumanizing human beings, what did he do? He healed them. Instead of hurting them, he healed them. When they were hungry, he fed them. When they were sad, he brought rejoicing and news of the kingdom of God. When they died, he brought them back to life. He is everything that you and I aren't that the fifth commandment asks. And then he was murdered in cold blood by you and me. And when his blood dripped down and hit the earth, unlike Abel's blood that stained it forever, his blood cleansed the earth forever. For the murderers that were putting him to death, and for you. So you're forgiven. I love the passage from the book of Hebrews that talks about this. It says, let's read it together. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. But there is forgiveness for a murderer. His name, Paul. His name, Pastor Dan. His name, you. And so Paul writes this to Timothy. He says, in closing, even though I once was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Do you notice what he says? That God shows him mercy because he acted in ignorance and unbelief. And that's odd to us. That's an, you know, why is it because you're ignorant? Because you acted in unbelief? Because you're a murderer? Exactly! That's exactly the point! Because we have these thoughts, Because we have these actions, because we are so steeped in sin, there was no other Savior that could save us, and so God showed mercy. Where sin increases, grace increases that much more. And that's why he says what he says in the next sentence, the grace of our Lord Jesus was poured out on me abundantly. And the word in Greek used here is the word like a wagon that's going along the road, and there's a buggy on the back, and the wagon is steeped. Uh, and just toppled over with gifts or with hay or with whatever it is and everything's falling off to the side. Just think of a dad packing up a car top carrier that's not packed right and this thing just spills all over the highway. This is the picture of grace though. It's spilling all over the world and God says that spilling over, that grace is spilling onto even the worst of sinners. You can't miss it, grace. And what does it produce? Along with this gift called grace, it, it gives us two things in the package. It gives us faith and it gives us love. Faith that God has put infinite value on my head by saving me. Faith that God has put transcendent value on every other human being, whether I love them or not. When you're forgiven, now you love them. When you're forgiven, now you don't look at the race, now you look, don't look at the gender, now you don't look at anything else, but in Christ we all are one. And that's true for the people that you look at in your home, in your school, in your work, at church. And that's gonna express itself in love. Two quick examples about how you can love your neighbor and look out for their bodily welfare. A connect group recently, and by the way, just because I'm mentioning two doesn't mean that this is happening all over the place with Christians, and they're doing it in small ways and big ways. I'm reminded of Ron Baker, a connect group leader um, that passed away a couple years ago in a tragic accident, actually. Before that accident, he wanted to bring me to a meeting, and so we went out to lunch. And he brought out on the table. He was so happy. His connect group that got together for Bible study said, "This is what we want to do. This is what we feel like we're called to do." He had a big bag, big plastic bag, and in that bag was a tarp, and water bottle, and some non-perishables, and a flashlight. And he says, "We're getting these to the people who really need them the most." He wasn't telling me to brag. But he was telling me because he wanted to share in loving the things that God loves, which is other people that need bodily welfare help. Maybe you have a story like that, too. This is why we do what we do at church. When we talk about things like going out into the community and helping people that need help, whether it's a physical thing or a spiritual thing, we do it because we have been forgiven for the love of God we've been forgiven, we've been given everything. And so we have things like August 12th, giving away 140 backpacks filled with um, school supplies and feeding the community. We don't do it for PR and we don't do it to get more members or to fill the church building. Why do we do it? We do it for the love of God, because we love what he loves. Underneath grace, love what God loves, see what God sees, and then trust what he's done in your life and in the life of others, then share it by keeping this commandment. Amen.